to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And the last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15 last week for Resurrection Sunday, and now we are back to the narrative. And it is it is a, a weighty and yet rejoicing passage, as I will show you. I think it's impossible, quite honestly, to, to comprehend what Jesus suffered in the garden. The mental agony, the Bible tells us, was so great that his physical body, uh, under, the, under the strain, responded with, uh, with a condition that, that physicians call hematidrosis, which which is, it means the stress got so great that the capillaries under his skin ruptured and then you bleed through, you bleed through your pores. And Jesus did that because he was given a preview of the, of the approaching crucifixion. He was, he was, he had a foreshadowing of being forsaken by the Father and having sin placed upon him and, and he'd never been separated from the Father before and, and never had he been the bearer of the wrath of God for sin. And, and that's what he was agonizing over in the garden. It wasn't the physical part. Of course, the physical part was horrible. The, the lashings and the crucifixion itself, the suffocation, the, the piercing of the side, that was bad. But, but that's not what Jesus was agonizing over. He was agonizing over being the sin bearer. And he comes out of the garden victorious. He prevailed. Jesus grasped uh, the cup firmly in his hand, and he declared, it is enough. The hour has come. That's how he ends the Garden of Gethsemane. And with those words, we're catapulted from the preparation for, for the cross to the actual scenes of the crucifixion. This is the first scene that we're going to look at this morning. It's, they're victorious words. Jesus meant the preparation is over, the temptation is finished, and the hour has come. He even says, behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And, and that's where we left off, where Jesus is saying, behold. And we talked about how they were on the Mount of Olives, and they're in a position where they can see down. The Kidron Valley would have been in front of them toward the city of David, which is where Caiaphas' house would have been, so they could have seen the torches coming. And Jesus says, behold... Here they come, the betrayer is at hand, and today we're going to see that, that betrayal. If the Garden of Gethsemane is like the, the first effects of, a, of the hurricane making landfall, then, then this scene, you would have to say, is the, the last-minute evacuation of all civilian personnel. <laughs> I mean... Jesus goes into the garden with all of the disciples, save Judas, and he leaves with, with none. Even a, a young man who is lingering around the garden ends up fleeing the Lord. And by the end of the passage, Jesus is all alone. And it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus foretold Judas' betrayal in Verses 17 through 21, he prophesied of the disciples' desertion in verses 27 through 31. And here's the fulfillment. Peter's denial, the three-time denial is yet to, to come, or the twice-denial, I should say. Uh, three-time denial, twice 
crowing of the rooster. They're tempted in the garden, but they fall here. Now, I don't know what you think about when you come to a passage like this. The Bible is obviously teaching us, showing us what Christ did, what He accomplished. And it's also giving us a, a record of, of the way human beings responded, because we can learn from that too. The Bible says there's no temptation taken us, but such which is common unto man. And Jesus is, is our Savior. And so we get to see both of those. One of the things I marvel at when I come to a passage like this is even how in the last moments of the Lord's life, even while He is in great agony, He's concerned about others. He's concerned about the, the disciples. I mean, He's teaching them in the garden how to prepare for temptation. Even as He's going back and forth three times, He's coming back, finding them sleeping, and He's exhorting them, He's encouraging them, because He knows what they're going to, to, to face. He's also transitioning them from being dependent upon Him to the Father. He's getting ready to go away, and so they've been, they normally have been coming to Jesus, asking Him for things. He answers their questions. He's teaching them, and now they're going to have to go to the Father. So it's a transition too. And in this passage, He models how to withstand betrayal. And this is also important for the disciples, because they're going to face arrest and betrayal as well. You know the passage where the Bible says Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. That's going to happen in this, in this scene. But the moment that Jesus is numbered with the transgressors, He's associated, He's, he's branded a criminal. The once, that, once that happens, He'll officially become a criminal to, to Rome and to the religious leaders. And anyone then associated with Him will face that same fate. This, has been, this is very different from what the disciples have known. And they're going to have to prepare for that change. I mean, they'll be despised by their own countrymen. They'll be rejected. They'll, they'll move the Gospel Commission forward in the midst of hostility. They're arrested in the first part of the book of Acts. They're threatened. And they do that because they are followers of, of, of Jesus. So there are two things going on in this passage before we even look at it. First of all, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. I mean, that's the obvious part, right? He had to be arrested. It was the Father's plan. Jesus is carrying out the Father's plan. The disciples must desert Him. He must walk the path alone because that's what the Bible says. And He must be betrayed by a close companion and arrested. So that's clearly one thing that's going on. Another thing is the disciples are getting a lesson for the future. And you and I are getting a lesson as well. They will fall away now, but just as Jesus said to Peter and as he prayed, when they are restored, when they're gathered back together after the resurrection, strengthen the brethren. And that's exactly what they do in the book of Acts. They also must remain committed to the Father's will and carry the plan of the gospel just as Jesus did, even whenever they're forsaken and betrayed. And the power to do that is found in the prayer going to the Father as Jesus instructed them in the garden. There's the prayer in the garden and now the betrayal, and they're still going to have to, to walk the path of, of the Great Commission, of carrying the gospel. Mark describes this scene for us with, there's, they're, they're, by focusing on, on, on four groups. Uh, it's titled, it's the betrayal of the Son of God. I, I don't think you, you need to, to spice up or jazz up this event, right? 
I mean, this is Jesus Christ and he's, he's being betrayed. And Mark talks about the crowd. He describes the crowd in verse 43. He then describes the betrayer, which we know that is Judas. He talks about the disciples, not only here, but in the other Gospels. And then it ends with some comments and statements by the Lord in verses 48 through 52. And we'll, we'll look at all of those this morning. Let's look, if you would, at the first one. It's the, I've titled the, the crooked crowd. And there's really only one thing that Mark emphasizes here, and that's the composition. Who makes up this, this crowd? Look, if you would, at verse 43. Here's Mark's famous word, immediately. While he was still speaking, so I mean, this close proximity, get up, let's be going, behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. While he is still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The focus there is the composition, who's in the crowd. Luke says when he arose from prayer. Mark says, while he was still speaking. Now, those might not seem like verse, uh, verses of victory, but they are. I mean, the point is, he's still standing, he's still speaking, he's still teaching after the garden. He's fully committed to the Father's plan. And Mark tells us the crowd appears, and he tells us who is in the crowd. It, it's, it's a full moon, we know that from Passover time. There's the denseness of the olive trees probably hid some of the moonlight, and then and yet Jesus can see this, this mob coming, coming toward him. And there's several hundred people in the party after we, as we talked about two Sundays ago. One old commentator said of the scene, they came with torches and lanterns to search for the light of the world. They brought swords and clubs to subdue this Prince of Peace. It's pretty good. Who was in the crowd? Look again, if you would, at verse 43. Mark describes very clearly Judas. We know that. But then he says the chief priest describes and the elders. And then we get some additional information by, by what's, what, what the individuals in the crowd are carrying with the swords and clubs. So you have the chief priest. That's clear. You have the elders and the scribes. And John tells us the high priest personal assistant is there. His right-hand man is there. All three of these parties make up the, the official... These are the official rulers of Israel, all three of them. This is the same group that plotted to kill Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 3. Matthew 26, verse 3 says, Then they assembled together, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people, unto the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they talked about destroying Jesus. They committed to do that. These are also the ones who are going to condemn him in the three Jewish trials. The, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is the, the rulers of, of Israel. Not only that, the temple guard was, was there as, as well. Verse 43 says, the crowd after he identifies specific individuals, he says the crowd in general, some had swords and some had clubs. 
And we get from that, from the word that's used there, this is the, the temple guard. This is, these, are, these are Jewish police officers, if you will. The security for the temple. And they carried clubs, like a billy club, if you will. And they used that to keep, to keep the order. They, they didn't carry deadly weapons like, like the Romans did. And so Mark also mentions another group here, which, which is the ones that are carrying the swords. And it's not just any sword, it's a particular kind. Machiron. It's a, it's a short sword. It's, it's the same sword that Romans 13 says that the, the government does not bear in vain. It's a, it's, it, it, it would be like a, it would be like some, a police officer having a, a Glock or a, a, or a Smith and Wesson, whatever it is. It's, it was what was assigned to Roman soldiers. It was used for other things. Other individuals had it. But, but if you were carrying it in this scenario, it was like your, your sidearm. It's a weapon used by Romans. And John tells us that Judas was leading a Roman cohort, 600 to 1,000 soldiers up this valley to Jesus. And when you put all of that together, the point is everyone is against him. The religious establishment, all three parts of the rulers of Israel, the political establishment, it's the temple police, they're like the local magistrates where they carry out security and the basic laws, they couldn't execute anybody, but they could arrest. So you have the religious establishment, the political establishment, and then you have the secular establishment, the Romans. They're there in the cohort, secured from Pilate. They're all there. And they're all in this crooked crowd coming to arrest Jesus. They're all represented, Jew and Gentile, both represented in this, in this crowd. Educated and uneducated. You have the Jewish leaders who are obviously educated, and then you had the soldiers, some of which were not. You have slave and free in this, in this group. There's the servant of the high priest. Peter whacks off his ear, you remember, and then there's the, the free men that are here. The point is, all of, all of the, the parties are, are represented. The only designation not mentioned in this group is women. Did you know that? No woman is mentioned in denial or betrayal of Jesus in the New Testament that I can find. Maybe somebody can show me a place where there is. But they're clearly not mentioned in this group. It's the, the men that are recorded in full and frontal rejection. And I think that there's a hint of, of redeeming grace there. Because women bear the stigma of leading the fall because of Eve, and now they're seen in the New Testament as faithful followers of the Redeemer. They're the first to the tomb, right? And they're the first to be rewarded to see the risen Christ. And Mark's point here is Jesus is rejected by all, just as the, just as the Bible says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, all men, Jew and Gentile. People that are smart, people that are not. The people that are in bonds to slavery and servanthood and people that are free. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was alone. 
Now, I know it's not a pleasant topic, and I don't know how often you think about it. I do whenever I pray. Um, but the Bible teaches that there is a real place called hell. We know that. Just like there's a real place called heaven. As Pastor Stephen can rejoice, knowing that his Father is in heaven, there are people that are not there. And one of the worst things about eternal damnation, eternal torment, will be that those who go there will be alone. People will be separated from God and removed from others. This idea that that I used to say, and I've heard others say, I, I can't wait to go to hell, I don't want to go to heaven, I want to go to hell because all my buddies are there, right? I'm going to go drink beer in hell with my buddies. That's ridiculous. There's going to be other people there, but the Bible says it's going to be solitary, the it's called outer darkness, meaning alone, meaning separated. You can see, according to Luke 16, in, the, in hell, the temporal part, but when the lake of fire, the final location that we've looked at in the book of Revelations, it's, it's outer darkness. It's a horrible reality. No hope of ever leaving, still in sin. You don't get better when you go to hell. You don't... You don't start loving Jesus or, or having regret when you're in hell. You're still depraved with all the bitterness, anger, and unbelief of a wicked heart all alone for all eternity. And you don't want to go there. But that's not my point. My point is that's why Jesus is all alone here. He's all alone here and everyone forsakes Him and He's betrayed because He took upon Himself the punishment that all those that look to Him for salvation deserve. Even God will turn from Him on the cross. He'll be separated even from the Father. And He did that for you and for me. So you don't have to go to that place and be separated from God and be other, uh, be separated from others. But not only that, he was also betrayed. There's the crooked crowd, and, and Mark only highlights for us the composition. But out of that crowd, he, he highlights one individual, and that's this beguiling betrayer known as, known as Judas. In verses 44 through 46, he first shows us Judas's leadership. Look, if you would, at verse 44. It says, now he who was betraying him had given them a, single, a signal saying, whoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. That's what that word to safety or safely literally means. You, you secure him. You're not being nice to him. He's saying, lay hold of him. Don't let him get away. Judas, in verse 43 is described as one of the twelve, and, and he comes up. It's a large crowd coming up to arrest one man. And yet all of the Gospels point out that Judas is the one that's leading the way. The one leading the crowd is Judas. He's not slinking behind, feeling bad about what he's done. He's out front, and he's leading the crowd. He's the one that knows where they're, where they're going. And this betrayal began all the way back in the upper room, at least as far as, as far as we know. 
it was being plotted prior to that. Jesus knows the plan, knows what Judas is up to. He knows what Satan desires, what God has permitted. And he plainly states in the Last Supper that one of them will betray him. And you know, is it I, is it I? And then Jesus plainly says in John 13, it's Judas. He gives Judas the morsel and says, what you do, do quickly. And the Bible says the other disciples don't know what what Jesus was saying, but Judas did. And then the Bible tells us that Satan enters Judas, Jesus dismisses him, and Judas leaves to carry out his, his betrayal. There's an undercurrent of betrayal all through the, the, the Passion Week. There's a betrayal of the disciples, a betrayal of Peter, but the betrayal of Judas is the greatest of all. Now, you should not let your sensibilities lead you to feel sorry for, for Judas, as if he has been overtaken by, by some moment or anything like that. He clearly regrets it after he's done, but at this point, he's not regretting anything. This is cold, calculated treachery. No one put Judas up to this or talked him into it. He initiated it. You remember that? Back in verse... Uh, Mark 13, they're looking for some way to betray Jesus. They don't know how. And Judas appears. He shows up and says, I will betray him. And they negotiate the price. Look, if you would, at verse 44. It clearly, clearly tells us this about Judas. Now, he who was betraying him had given them, who's them? the people that are arresting him, the crowd, a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, watch this, seize him, lead him away under guard. Those are commands. Judas is leading the group. He's directing the soldiers. You seize him. You lead him away. This is how you're going to know. And the rulers have hated Jesus for a long time, but they didn't know what to do with him. And the Bible says they were afraid to take him during Passover And then Judas comes to them. And the Bible says whenever Judas came, it says they were glad when they heard this because they have no way to betray him. And while the Lord had been rejected many times, this is the the crescendo. All betrayal happens on the same night. All of the betrayals were predicted and plainly stated to those involved. And all of the betrayal happened within the physical presence of the Lord. Now, you think about that. Have you ever been betrayed? Disloyalty? That's a painful, it's a painful thing. Especially when you give your heart to somebody, to somebody else. And I would say it's difficult to recover from them. And, and yet all of these betrayals happen on the same night to the Lord. In a, in a, in a few number of, of hours. You know, maybe you're betrayed whenever you're a teenager. You know, your friends turned on you. You know, maybe something bad happened in your 20s or 30s. Maybe later after your kids left, whatever it might be. Those are spread out. All of the betrayals of Christ happen on the same night. And not only that, Jesus warned the ones that betrayed Him. Don't do this. Don't go this way. This is what's going to happen. 
And so they can't even say, I didn't know. I mean, one of the things that helps us, I think, deal with disloyalty or betrayal is the person can come back to us and say, wow, I was ignorant, I didn't know, I, I, I didn't realize. And, and yet Jesus tells every one of them up front, you're going to do this. And they say, no, we won't. So they can't even plead ignorance. That doesn't even salve the wound. And not only that, all of the betrayal happens in the physical presence of the Lord. I'm betrayed, I find out about it later, and then that person avoids me because it's awkward, right? When somebody has turned on you. This happens in the physical presence of of the Lord. Notice how Judas is described. He's not only he's not only leading, but he is described in verse forty three as one of the twelve. All Four Gospels identify Judas as the same way. In fact, the nine, there's only nine times in the New Testament that phrase is used. One of the twelve. Eight of the nine times, it's attributed to Judas. And the whole point is, he's close. He's a close friend. He's one of the twelve. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? How could somebody who spent Three years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He was in the boat when the Lord calmed the sea. How does he do that and then do what he did? MacArthur said there's never been a greater squandering of opportunity of human life and potential than Judas Iscariot because there's never been anyone else that had the same kind of access that Judas did and then betrayed and blew it the way that Judas did. It directs access to the Son of God in the flesh, and it never took. He was a hypocrite. He was so good that the twelve don't know it. I mean, think about this. When Jesus says, one of you betray me, nobody looks at Judas and goes, it's him. We knew it all along. They don't know. He's that good. He's so good, they give him the money. Would you give a betrayer, would you make the betrayer a treasurer of your, of your little band? Of course not. He is a good hypocrite. And you say it's mind-boggling that that would happen. Well, how mind-boggling is it that we sit under the Word of God or we read the Word of God every Sunday or every day and then we dabble in sin and we don't repent? I think that's just as mind-boggling, isn't it? Don't think that you're beyond betrayal of the Lord. Don't read Peter or Judas and say, I would never do that. Jesus says you should think the opposite. I mean, that's the point of the garden. Pray that you'll not enter into temptation. And He tells us that, not just for the disciples' benefit, but for our own. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If you look at others, and you easily can look at them and think, how could they do that? and not immediately think, well, wait a minute, I better be careful because I could do the same thing, then, then you're, you're already in a very dangerous position. You're lifted up in pride. And you should also not think this won't happen to you in life. You shouldn't think it's impossible for someone close to you, even your best friend or, or whoever it might be, they're not going to do this to me. It, it can happen. It will likely happen. In ministry, I promise you it will happen multiple times over. Jesus' point is not to saying it won't happen, but to say when it does, you must remain committed to the Father's plan just like the Lord did. 
And Judas is out front leading the way because he was leading the betrayal. And he knows where the master stayed at night. He also knows who Jesus was. And so he gives him the sign. Look if you would at verse 44. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. He's the one. It's an unbelievable act or sign. There's a lot of different signs that Judas could have, could have used. But he chooses this one. It's the, the kind of kiss that Mark is talking about here is, a, is an embrace. Now, this is kind of random, but, but you know, you, there's a lot of talk about uh, in the public sexual harassment and those kind of things. You, you, you don't want to hug somebody or kiss somebody on the cheek or show affection without their permission and those kind of things. And I was thinking about that. I wonder how that works in France where they kiss everybody on the cheek, right? Or here when you greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, that's not what Judas is doing here. This was the normal way to greet someone in Christ's day. But there's different ways in which you, you did it. If you were an inferior, you kissed the back of the hand or the palm of the hand. So if someone comes and you, they kiss the back of your hand or the palm of your hand, if you were willing to do that or you approached in that way, that, that gave an indication of where you ranked in the class of, of people. If you were a slave, you, you kissed the feet. Which is, which is why the, the anointings of Jesus, when Jesus forgives these, 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 these women, they're, uh, and they recognize who He is, they're, they're, it's an act of adoration. It's saying, I am slave, you are master. And it was a way of, of particularly humbling themselves, even though they weren't slaves. But a kiss on the face, which is what this is, is a kiss between equals. It's a sign of intimacy, warm affection. And Matthew says, and Mark says that he says, Hail, Rabbi, when he approached him. And he doesn't just do it once, he does it repeatedly. The word means to kiss fervently. It's what Tracy does to some of you whenever she grabs a hold of your cheek. There's a preposition in front of the, the word kiss, kata, which, which is, intensifies it. it. It means he repeatedly he, he does it over and over. This is the way that the father kissed the prodigal son in Luke 15. When he sees the son coming home, the father leaves, he runs to the son, and he begins to kiss him all over. That's the, that's the word that's used here. This is what Judas does. And Judas at this point has one final clandestine act before he's publicly exposed, and at that point he doesn't care, he wants his money, and he'll receive it through a kiss. Proverbs 27.6 says, The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Deceitful. You don't see them coming. I've heard people, many people, say that they, they don't go to church because, don't go to church anymore because somebody hurt them. It's possible. And I surely don't want to minimize any pain that you've experienced, but that's not a reason to quit. I've been hurt 
in serving the Lord, so I'm not going to serve anymore. I've been hurt by this family member. I've been hurt in whatever I've been betrayed. Maybe you were. But that's not a reason to quit obeying the Father's plan, whatever the Father's plan is. If as far as the church is concerned, Jesus didn't betray you. He didn't quit. It's His plan that you're fulfilling. He knows the pain of betrayal and yet stayed committed to what God commanded Him to do. And that's exactly what you and I need to do. But it's hard. It is. Do you know how Jesus responds to Judas's betrayal? Well, it's not recorded here. But in Luke 22, what's recorded in Mark is Jesus speaks to the crowd. In Luke 22, Jesus says something to Judas. Luke 22:48, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He, that's what he says. What's telling, though, is that Judas hasn't kissed him yet. So the idea is Judas is leaning in. He hasn't laid one on him yet. And Jesus asked him a question before Judas ever, ever arrives. As he's approaching to kiss him, he says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Can you imagine that moment? You see what Jesus is doing? He's giving Judas one last opportunity to repent before he does the deed. Before, while he's in mid-pucker, Jesus is giving him one last opportunity to repent. He calls himself the Son of Man. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The Son of Man, you're betraying the Son of Man. He's graciously, warningly putting the full weight of his deed before him. You're about to commit treason against the Messiah of God. Are you sure you want to do that? There's a pause for repentance. And Judas moves forward. Maybe God's doing that for you today. I don't know. Giving you a pause. It's catching you right before you're going to do something irrevocable. And he's saying, don't do that. Won't you stop? Won't you turn from your sin to me? What an amazing Savior that even in the moment when he's getting ready to be betrayed... He's still concerned about repentance. Well, let me show you the dazed disciples. Verse 47. There's a bold moment for Peter, and then there's a revealing statement by the Lord. Look at verse 47. They laid hands on him, and they seized him in verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus speaks. We're told by the other Gospels that this is Peter that does this. When those are around him saw what's going on, Luke says, they say, Lord, shall we fight? So there's confusion, there's this large crowd, they don't know what to do. And they ask the Lord, shall we fight? And Peter pulls out the sword and whacks off the the servant's ear. He tries to kill him, but he misses. This is bold and this is dense. It's bold because they're facing a Roman cohort, several hundred men. And the Bible tells us they had two swords, right? You remember in Luke? Jesus tells them you need to take a backpack. I sent you out without anything and now you need to take provisions and you even need to take a sword. And the disciples look around and say, we have two. And Jesus says, it's enough. 
They have two swords. And we know who has one of them. It's Peter. It's also dense because it shows he still doesn't get it. Peter was bold because he had something to prove. I mean, Peter just said, I'll, I'll never deny you, and now here's his big moment. And I think the reason that Peter has such courage is because of what John 18 tells us just took place. We talked about it in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember when the crowd walks up, Jesus walks to the crowd, and he asks them the question, who do you seek? You remember that? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am, I am he, and all of the crowd falls. And then they get up and Jesus asks them the question again. And they answer, probably with a little less vinegar the second time. <laughs> Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And so Peter was watching all of that. He probably feel, feels pretty emboldened. I mean, if you watched your master speak and everybody fall on the ground and you got a sword, you might be feeling pretty bold too. And Peter pulls out his sword and he swings at the servant of the high priest. And he obviously doesn't mean to cut off his ear. He was trying to kill him and he missed. And he thinks, this is it, finally. The king is fighting. He, he speaks, they all fall on the ground. I've got the sword, shall we fight? And that's what they expected, right? I mean, the kingdom to come, and they're going to overthrow the Romans, and that whole bit. And Jesus responds, he speaks to the crowds, and he also speaks to the disciples. In the other Gospels, he says to the disciples, it's enough, put away your sword. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Jesus is saying, this is not the way the kingdom is going to be inaugurated. War will not bring the deliverance. Only my death will do that. I mean, Christianity is not like Islam. It doesn't spread by the killing of people. It spreads by the arms of a Savior stretched on a cross. And you know Peter got that. Tradition tells us that even after he's pretty bold, he was crucified, giving his life for the gospel. You know what Jesus does to this man? We're... Peter cuts his ear off. He heals him. He gives him a brand new ear. It's the only healing in the New Testament of its kind where there's a fresh wound and he, and, and he heals it. This is a bad man. Don't, don't read this and say the, the slave of the high priest thinking just some little servant. This is the right-hand man of the high priest coming to oversee on Caiaphas' behalf what is taking place. This is a bad dude. Peter swings at him. He misses, and Jesus heals him. The last thing, think about this, the last thing your Lord's hands do before they're bound is He heals one of His enemies with those very hands. Isn't that amazing? And look at what He says to the, to the crowd. In verse 48, Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber when every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me? He speaks to the crowd. The other passages, he speaks to the disciples. It's enough. Put the swords away. This is not how the king was going to be inaugurated. He says, do you not think that I could, I could call down a legion of angels? And wipe everything out. I don't need your sword. This is not the way it's going to happen. I must do this. I have to go to the cross. And now he speaks to the crowd. 
one of the questions that, that people often ask is, is, is why so many people? I mean, you got one guy and 11 friends. I mean, what, why, do they, why do you need hundreds of soldiers? And Jesus asked the same question and then gives the ultimate answer. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? As you would have against a robber? So many people with swords and clubs went every day. For two weeks I've been here in the temple, around the temple. Well, the practical reason they sent the, the cohort was the Jewish leaders were, were afraid. The people loved Jesus and they didn't want to lose face or power. The Romans used the force because they didn't, they didn't want to riot. There's a couple million people in, in Jerusalem and the Romans kept a tight leash on it, and there's already been one attempt at an insurrection. And they've already arrested that guy. You remember what that guy's name is? It's Barabbas. Mark 15, 7, the Romans had imprisoned an insurrectionist named Barabbas. There's already been stuff going on in Jerusalem. And so it was very easy for the high priest to, to convince them to arrest Jesus. He's already come into the temple. He's already turned over the table. See what he did? There are people following him. You, you, you need to make sure this guy, this doesn't get out of hand. It's going to be on your head. Rome's not going to be happy. That's their reasoning. But Jesus tells them the real reason why they've come and why they arrest him now. Look at verse 49 again. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. That's why. Every day I was with you in the temple doing what? Teaching. Teaching what? The true Gospel. <laughs> and you didn't seize me. Why? Because it wasn't God's appointed time. Why do you arrest me now? What does Jesus say? It was to fulfill the Scriptures. And He preaches to fulfill Scripture. And He does the miracles to fulfill Scripture. And He prays the Father's will be done to fulfill Scripture. And He stands up and faces a betrayal and arrest to fulfill Scripture. And He'll lay down His life to fulfill Scripture. Jesus triumphantly goes to the cross fulfilling prophecy. And in the fulfillment of Scripture, verse 50 says, and they all left Him and fled. They all deserted. If there were women there, which there weren't, they would have fled too. They deserted Him. And look at verse 51. Oh, here's the two odd verses. The young man who was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Ray Stevens sang a song, they call him the streak, right? Well, that's what's happening here, literally, naked. What is this? Who is this? Well, I'm going to quote MacArthur again on this. He said, people say to me, who is this guy? And his quote is, how would I know? You're looking at the same Bible that I am. Hey, the guy's not named. I have no idea who the guy is. 
I don't know who he is. And you don't know who he is. There's all kinds of theories, crazy theories. Um, you know, this is symbolic. This is actually uh, a figure of Christ, you know, where he's, he's stripped of everything and, and now he's going to be clothed again after the resurrection or a bunch of other things. I think the closest one, closest theory that makes sense, I'm not saying this is, this is the case. The closest theory is Mark, could be Mark, because he's, he's writing this and he doesn't name himself just like, like John does, the, the one whom, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But we don't have any idea. There's a young man following. He's wearing a linen sheet, so wherever he's come from, he's not fully clothed. This is like, like your nightgown. This is your undergarment. Where, where was he? We don't know. Is he, a, is he awakened from sleep because of the soldiers coming along? We don't know. But he's a follower. And they seize him. And as they seize him, they grab a hold of the only thing that he's got on, and he wriggles out of that and, and runs away. There's no name here. So what's the point of verse 51 and 52? The point is everybody's gone. And Jesus is alone. The disciples have defected. Judas has already been gone. He comes back and betrays the Lord. Jew and Gentile, political leaders, secular leaders, religious leaders, they've all betrayed Him. Now even His very own loyal disciples, even some random guy that's not named has forsaken the Lord and chosen nakedness over the cost of faithfulness. He would rather run away naked in shame than to be numbered with Christ. No one is left but Jesus. Because He's the only one that could go. He's the only one who could save you from your sin. He's the only one who can save you from whatever situation that you're facing. He stands triumphant, alone. So what are you facing? Is it bad? Well, if you haven't trusted Christ, it's, it's way worse than you could ever imagine. It's so bad you're going to face God one day. And Jesus walked the path for you, alone. Maybe it's not that. Maybe you're a believer and... It's something bad. It's, it's not worse than the cross of the wrath of God, and that's what the Lord bore for you. And if you come to Him, truly come, broken and contrite, He won't turn you away. He'll help you. He'll grant you what you need in your hour. Let's pray.